and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host, Gemma Purdy from Monash University. Today's topic is resisting impunity. More than 50 years since the mass killings of the mid-1960s and 20 years since the fall of the New Order regime. How is Indonesia facing up to its violent past? How does this past and a failure to address it impact in the present? And what is being done to resist enduring impunity in democratic Indonesia? To discuss this topic, my guest today is Galu Wandita from the NGO Asia Justice and Rights. Hello Galu, welcome to Talking Indonesia. Thank you. And welcome to the University of Melbourne. You're in town to attend a conference on gender violence. Yes. Could you tell us a little bit about AJAR, the organisation, where you work and what your agenda is? Sure. AJAR stands for Asia Justice and Rights. So we were established in 2010 and our mandate is to work for accountability for mass violations in Asia. So that's a very big vision because it's a very difficult thing to try to do. We are now working in Indonesia and in Timor-Leste, which is our kind of the foundation of our work, but we also have programs in Myanmar and Sri Lanka as well. We also work at a regional level. We, we uh, facilitate a network called the Transitional Justice Asia Network, which has now about 10 country members. What is transitional justice? So transitional justice is an approach to where societies have to try to deal with a mass violation that has taken place, sometimes in the past, but now with IJAR, we are more and more seeing the link between the past and the present. So we don't use that word anymore of dealing with the past because our past is in the present. So we talk about mass violations and we can see the repeating cycles. You can see what's happening in the Philippines, what's happening in Myanmar. You see in different ways, for example, in Indonesia, the practice of torture, it's not the same kind of torture of people who are political dissentees or political prisoners, but it has become a different kind of practice of torture, which is very widespread still. So we're trying to look at those links, including how in the past there was mass gender-based violence in Indonesia in 1965 with the ascent of Suharto and also at the end of his regime in 1998 with the May riots and violence. There's been very little accountability for uh, those crimes. And then we now see that there's also high levels of violence against women in a more democratic Indonesia. So we're trying to understand better those links. You're in town to attend a conference on gender violence. Yes. You mentioned gender-based violence and this term gender justice is something that you also discuss. So how does that fit within Aja's overall work and projects? Yeah, so gender justice is a vision of a society where both genders are treated equally, where uh, violence against women is no longer entrenched, where there is justice for women who experience violations. So, you know, it's it's quite a wide term. Sometimes so it's not necessarily just about historical cases of violations, but it's in the present as well. Though. Yeah, so that's kind of this new approach of working on mass violations that we're developing. In Timor-Leste, I'll speak about this in my lecture today, we are working with women survivors of violence 
that took place during the conflict, 1975 to 1999. But we are now also facilitating them to meet with victims of domestic violence and different forms of violence that's taking place in East Timor in an independent Timor-Leste now. Because if you think about it, some of the root causes are still the same. The culture, the patriarchy, the way women are marginalized, lack of access to justice, access to education, all those things that made it worse during the Indonesian occupation, of course. There's no longer the heavy military presence, obviously. That's changed, but some of those root causes are still there. And the things that have caused women to be silent about their violations in the past are the same things that make women silent about the violations that they're experiencing now. So we've found that it's been really interesting to see the older women become an inspiration for the younger women who are facing also gender-based violence, but in a different way. What we're saying is that there's a, there's a link and there's there's a meeting point, particularly the cultural factors. One of the things that IGER is doing, we've, we're creating a series of methods that we call unlearning impunity. We're very interested in how this culture of impunity creates silence and then makes this sort of perfect oppression, you know, a perfect uh, cycle of violations that can be perpetrated throughout generations even. So part of unlearning impunity is looking at how the culture silences women and men and trying to look at the not only the national laws. People who work on justice, obviously one area is justice that you get through judicial process. And that's, that's important as well. We're not saying that we don't work on that, but mm. there's a whole bunch of cultural and local barriers that are really strong that you also have to work on before a victim can even get to uh, anybody who's working in the sort of justice sector. So all of those come together. And so you mentioned cases in Timor-Leste, but you're also working closely with women in Indonesia. In yeah, so... Um, that's been a really interesting process. We brought together women from Timor-Leste and women survivors from 1965 in Indonesia, women from Aceh and women from Papua. And we created a process that then produced this uh, stone and flower methodology, which is our first method under our Unlearning Impunity series. Silencing and pushing back and trying to fit into kind of normal life is a way that impunity is is nurtured in Indonesia. Mm. So Stone and Flowers is actually using so the, the rights of victims, the right to truth, the right to heal, the right to not experience or to be free from violence, and the right to justice. So those four areas of rights, we have an exercise where we put stones and flowers and everybody is talking in a circle and they have to reflect on do you have some kind of truth in your life do you feel like your truth is known or accepted in your family or you you have accepted it there is recognition in the community and they can choose either a stone when they say no or a flower when they say yes and put it in this circle that we create so it's really i mean it's really just a sharing, a discussion, but somehow with the stone and the flower, it opens up a space for reflection. The stone being kind of the burden that they have to carry and or a pebble in the shoe or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. like people use kind of these metaphors. And um, so we have um, created this methodology that 
uses that, uses a timeline where women are asked to tell the story of their history of themselves and their community and put it together in a timeline, whichever timeline that is relevant in each context. We have used body mapping and community mapping. We also created another methodology, which is resource mapping. So what was the resources that you had for your livelihood before the conflict and after? So it's kind of a way to really dig into their lives before and after with the view of then coming up with things that they can do as a group to improve their lives. So, for example, in Buru Island, we Mm -hmm. did this uh, with a local NGO, and we worked with women who were the wives of political prisoners or uh, the daughters. And some some of these daughters married some of the young political prisoners. So just to go back a little bit, in 1968... Suharta used Buru Island as a um, prison island. And about 10 years later, 78, most of them were already released. But during that time, under the Suharta regime, the wives and the children were brought in. And not many people know about this. And they were sort of brought in under the guise of a transmigration program. But they were, it was forced displacement. They were put on Navy ships, brought to Buru and reunited with their fathers or husbands. But life was quite difficult in the beginning. But later on, they created a really interesting community life there. In 1978, when most people had returned, I think about 200 families didn't have anywhere to go and decided to stay. So when you go to Buru Island now, there's still all those houses that the political prisoners built. They're still living in them. Mm. Uh, Some of them are very old and very poor. Some of the children are now uh, part of the local uh, village structure. So in Buru Island, when we did this uh, stone and flower, one of the things that came up was that the women wanted to look at their uh, marriage certificate because their marriage certificate had said name, you know, blah, 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 they're married, and then occupation, political prisoner from the communist Getigapues PKI. Mm. So they said, well, we want to change that. It should say occupation farmer, which is what they were. So they uh, met with the local head of the the court, and after some process, they got new marriage certificates. So that's like a small piece of justice and truth. So it came out of being in this this stone and flower workshop and having these conversations and then... Yeah. I mean, of course, there's other bigger sort of issues around justice and truth that still need working on. But that's another example of when you actually open up this process to the survivors themselves, some really interesting things can come up. Yeah. And so you mentioned that you had groups come together from from Aceh, from Papua, from Timor-Leste, from 1965. How does that work when, when they're together, people, these women from different places and having yeah, different so, experiences? Um, so what we did is we trained a group of women from all those areas. Some of them were survivors and some of them were NGO workers on the methodology. We created the methodology together and then they went off to their own communities and conducted this process. So out of that, we have a publication called Enduring Impunity, uh, Women Surviving Atrocities in the Absence of Justice. And out of that, we have this 
manual series called Unlearning Impunity. So now we're working on uh, a new manual called Mosaic, which is for torture survivors. So it's men and women, but it's still, it's kind of the same idea of using participatory action research tools, working with survivors, using a human rights and a transitional justice framework, but making it very simple and open for survivors to participate. So we're so they themselves can become the facilitators, maybe yeah. of another group. Yeah. How many so far have you involved in this methodology? By now, we're in the hundreds. It's been used, for example, our uh, partners in Palu in um, Central Sulawesi. Escapeham. A few years ago, the mayor of Palu made an apology to victims of 1965. He's no longer the mayor now. So, uh, but when uh, when this happened, Parusdi then um, created a decree and tried to bring some basic services to s- some of the survivors. So, in doing that, they had to verify who were the victims, mm-hmm. and Escapeham then um, used some of the stone and flower methods to do this verification. So, they worked with 400 survivors. It's a tool, it's a participatory tool, so you can adjust it, you can use it for your own different purposes. But obviously, we like to know how people are using it and how to improve it. So for for the people who come along to participate, is it usually the first time that they may have shared these stories? Yeah, in in the Indonesian context, you know, after reformation in 1998, we're now 20 years into that process, survivors began to speak out. People started to write their autobiographies. NGOs started to do some documentation, not only on 65, on Aceh, on Papua. But one of our learning points from that process is that when somebody is interviewed and their story is taken away from them, sometimes they may never see the results or they don't really know what happened or the story is kind of taken out of their hands. And one of the things we wanted to do, particularly if it's Truth Commission or this is going to bring justice and it's a kind of a lawyerly interview, which which I'm saying is those things still need to happen. But we, what we're trying to do is create a, another set of tools so that the story becomes something that the survivors can share in their own way, can have a space for reflection about the present and done in a group so that they can then have an aha moment and decide to work on something together. So that's how it's a little bit different. I have read the paper that you're giving for the conference and and you speak about the fact that documenting stories is not enough and that this is, as you describe it, the extension of that. And it's, I guess, giving ownership of the stories back to those who are telling them. So you gave us an example of of the Buru Island case of an action that came from the within the group. Are there any examples like that from, say, Timor Leste or elsewhere? Yeah. So out of this process, we also are learning more about the impact of violations. So, for example, we've been working with women survivors of, of rape and torture for a long time, but we've never really worked closely with 
their children. And some of them are children who were born out of a violation. And one of the things that came out of this process was that, first of all, that we needed to work with the children who are now mostly adult children. So we used the same methods. And for example, we found that they in independent East Timor still have challenges in getting a birth certificate, not because the law doesn't allow a single mother to have only their name on the birth certificate, but because the way the people in the in those offices are like, well, you know, you need to fill in the name of the father. Like, well, I don't have a father. No, no. Well, you have to have a father because, you know, it's impossible. And so... Uh, mm. Or or they write something like incognito, which means unknown. But that becomes something that they feel very bad about. Stigmatized. Yeah. I mean, it's better just to keep it blank. There's discrimination. There's um, culturally, I think, in Timor, many of them have been absorbed well into the society. You know, they take on the mother's surname or family name. and But there's also still a lot of work to be done. In East Timor, in Timor-Leste, there has been a truth commission, and the truth commission did a really good job, full disclosure, I was working in the truth commission, but the commission um, did a good job in trying to document and convey the stories of women survivors and men survivors as well. It came out with a whole bunch of recommendations, but it took another 10 years before, uh, finally, with the work that we're doing, bringing some of the stolen children from Timorese stolen children who were taken to East Timor between 1975 to 99. We've been looking for them and bringing them back. And that somehow pushed then the prime minister to say, wow, there is unfinished business to do. So then he wrote a decree to set up the Centro Nacional Chega. Um, so it's a new, fairly new institution with a mandate to uh, ensure that the recommendations of the Truth Commission report are implemented and that victims, although they do not use that word, they say uh, vulnerable survivors are looked after. So that's uh, a really important new kind of momentum in Timor-Leste. And of course, now we have to push again to make sure that it happens. You mentioned the stolen children. Maybe we can speak a little bit more about that. So these are children who were taken from Timor-Leste to Indonesia. Yes. And and you were involved in this program of reuniting them with them, with their mothers mostly, isn't it? Um. Well, it's with whoever is Who's still left? alive. Um, so the Truth Commission, CAVR, had a chapter on what happened to the children, the impact of human rights violations on children. And one of the most compelling stories that came out of it was the fact that we use the word child transfers, that children were taken by the military in the beginning. Towards the end, it was some more kind of educational institutions or foundations. The commission didn't say how many, but there are thousands. From the stories that we've gathered, each person says, oh yeah, in on the Navy Navy ship, there were like 30 or 50 or, you know, so the numbers are big. And they were taken to Indonesia, perhaps on the promise that they would get education or employment or a better future. But in, the, in practice, uh, many of them were cut completely off from any contact with their family their names were changed, many changed religions. So it's not something new. It's something that the Truth Commission raised and Helene van Klinken had also done
done uh, research on this. But we, as IGR, we thought, look, we need to do something on this. So mm. we thought, okay, maybe we can try to find more of these stolen children. And we flipped the process. So instead of getting names from East Timor, from the families and looking for them in Indonesia, we started finding some of the survivors and getting them to find their peers. And that's been a more fruitful approach. So we've now found about 100. And with a sliver of memory uh, of the name of a village or the name of their parents, it's easier to find their families in Timor-Leste because, you know, it's a population of one million and the oral history is quite strong. So even if a family has moved, if we know the name of the village, usually there will be somebody who knows about that child and their family. So I think we've brought now about 50 back for a short reunion visit. So, you know, you can imagine this is a shock to the system on all sides. And the work has been also given an umbrella and facilitated by the Human Rights Commission in Indonesia and its counterpart in Timor-Leste, the Provador for Human Rights and Justice. So it's been an interesting process and still a long way to go. Really what we're pushing for is that the two countries, the two governments create a better mechanism so that more of these children who are now adults can go through this process. So the governments in some way, at some level, sanction it. Yeah, so they're being involved and uh, even the because of the Commission for Truth and Friendship, this mm. uh, two, this bilateral commission that looked at the crimes of 1999, the Commission for Truth and Friendship actually had a recommendation to set up a mechanism f- to search for the disappeared, including these separated children. But nothing has come to that, and it's going to be 10 years since the Commission of Truth and Friendship completed its report in 2008. But because of that, there's some political space to say, look, this is a um, follow-up from that recommendation, Mm -hmm. and the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Indonesia and in Timor-Leste have been involved. You know, some of these children don't have any documentation. They Mm -hmm. don't have an ID card or a family card. So getting them passports, is there's so many barriers to doing that. So the Human Rights Commission, the ministry uh, that is the umbrella for the immigration system is also very helpful with it. But, you know, we're a working group with a handful of NGOs, so Mm. we can find 10, 20 people a year, but that's not going to be enough. You know, 10 years from now, we would have found 200, but there's thousands, so there needs to be a better solution. So that's part of the work that we're trying to do. We've written a policy paper. We're trying to get the two governments to do something more on it. Also in Timor the families haven't spoken out a lot about it yet. Many of them, you know, they've lost hope for 30 or 40 years. They think that person's died. They have actually a grave of for them and so it's it's very it's sensitive work as you can imagine and time sensitive as well if, as, yes as you it, sh- it should be I mean mm. if you look at the convention on the disappeared there's this notion that when somebody's disappeared it's an ongoing crime it's an ongoing violation because until that person is found the families are still under duress about what happened to this person so we're trying to say there should be something ur- urgently done about about this, but it's very difficult. And to be honest, a lot of donors, uh, people who are interested in East Timor, Timor Leste, or Indonesia, they think it's too sensitive and they don't want to go anywhere near it. 
this issue is too sensitive. Interesting, right? Because it, it's involving children, so it's often on those issues that people Yeah, but they're no longer conceive. children. It's right. been 30 or 40 years, but they were taken as children. To draw a comparison with the Indonesian case again, you mentioned that in East Timor there was quite a successful Truth and Reconciliation Commission and process there, which has now led to establishing this institution. Do you think that something like this is necessary in Indonesia, is possible in Indonesia? Uh, after reformation, the Indonesian upper house of parliament actually made a number of resolutions saying that there should be a reckoning, a process of setting up a Truth Commission for Indonesia. In 2004, actually, the law was passed, but the law was imperfect. It had some sort of badly informed mechanisms in it saying that, for example, a victim could get reparations if they forgave their perpetrators. So some NGOs and victims brought the case to the Constitutional Court. And instead of just getting rid of that article, the Constitutional Court annulled the whole law. And we haven't made much progress since then. A few years back, after pushing for uh, reforming the law for many years, a coalition called the Coalition for Truth and Justice, KKPK. It's a coalition of 50 organizations across Indonesia. We actually organize a civil society truth process. We called it the Year of Truth. We produced a report. We had public hearings in Aceh, Papua, Solo, Palu, and Jakarta. And we produced a report called Reclaiming Indonesia. So looking at this kind of cycle of violations in the last 40 years in in Indonesia. Now, just recently, a Truth Commission was established in Aceh. The Truth Commission was promised as part of the peace process in Aceh in 2005. And the process has taken a very long time. And finally, uh, last year, the commissioners were appointed. The law is based on a local law, so it was established by the Achenese parliament. And now they're starting their statement-taking, working closely with civil society. Around 1965, it's still very, very polarized. It's worsened in the last few years with social media has increased hate speech and has increased sort of the polarization of our societies across the world. And Indonesia is included in that. There is really less space for survivors of 1965 to speak out now uh, in the Last year, the legal aid office in Jakarta was attacked when some victims were meeting to talk about 1965. So it's we're kind of one step forward, two steps back. And part of the work that we do and civil society does is that, you know, without looking at 1965, then it's going to be really difficult for us to learn some of the key lessons about our society that can enable us to progress in our own struggle to strengthen democracy in Indonesia. You mentioned that there's this social polarization around this issue as well. When Joko Widodo was elected, he was elected on a platform that included a human rights platform where he spoke about a process of truth and reconciliation, particularly on 65 and some other issues. But he has backtracked on that. Why do you think that this has had such an impact on, on at the political level, this, this polarization of sentiment? And why 65? Why is it such a trigger? 
Well, I think it's because we haven't worked on it in a kind of systematic way. I mean, you know, there are groups obviously led by survivors, civil society that have been documenting and have been writing. There's academics who've been researching on 1965. But in general, sort of the mainstream, we don't have much appetite to look at our own history. So we haven't looked at what happened in East Timor in between 75 to 99. We haven't looked at 1965. We haven't looked at what happened in Papua in the 60s. And because of that, it's like we have kept on our blindfolds that were given to us under the Saharta regime. And we're sort of walking towards the future in these blindfolds. And, and really, it is painful to look at our history and to look at our own mistakes and to see how, for example, in times of conflict, we have used vigilante groups to get to get to a political objective. So we haven't learned that lesson and we are seemingly repeating it now, but for a different conflict, it's no longer sort of the Cold War and East versus West. It's a new new sorts of, you know, land conflict, religious conflict, all of those. We're still all the time using these vigilante groups, which is something that we did back in 1965. So these are the things that we have to unlearn and when we unpack the impunity that has, has gripped our society for so long. So that's interesting. So you're you're painting a picture where society itself needs to unlearn their own impunity. So rather than, which is perhaps the approach that some people might might take, which is to look more at the the elite level, to look within inside the military or inside the political system and seek out the perpetrators from within those levels. I think you need both. Yeah. You need both. Because the reason why the elite is still the elite is because the mainstream has allowed them to continue to be the elite. We haven't done enough of a of a truth-telling, of a critical look at our own history. And the people who were enriched during the Suharto period still own all of those resources. And, you know, and it's all coming back to us in a big cycle, 20-year cycle. Now we're about to go into a next election cycle, presidential election next year. And some of the new political parties have very, very strong links to the Suharto Chindana family. Indeed. So this the brings... past is in the present. Yes. And so it begs the question, how do you reflect on that last 20 years and where you are today? I think we have made a lot of progress in some areas. We have a constitution that protects human rights. We have a constitutional court. We have a fairly free and quite a critical press. So in some ways, we're doing well. In some other ways, we have so many more challenges. Unlike the Suharta era, we actually can vote freely. But how we vote is another matter altogether. You know, how do you use your freedom? How do you inform yourself about the candidates? Who are the candidates who can be candidates? This whole thing of campaigning and campaign funds. I mean, Indonesia is not unique in having this problem, but we are a fairly young democracy and we're still learning how to do that well and how not to end up electing people who have had to get into debt for their campaign and therefore 
are pushed into a, a cycle of corruption. I'm speaking of corruption. I mean, the 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 anti-corruption commission in Indonesia has, has made some huge progress in terms of trying to stop corruption, bringing many perpetrators, many corrupt people to prison. But there are many more because the problem is so systemic, and we haven't dealt with our historical corruptors. That is something we're seeing across Asia, that our cultures of impunity are very strong and, and we have to work very hard to, to push for accountability for mass violations in the past because it really impacts what's happening in the present. What about the young people? Are they looking to know more about the past, being critical of Indonesia's history? Yeah, I think there are some young people who are doing that. Just on 1965, for example, there are some young people who are starting to write a blog called Ingat Namlima, Remember 65, where they are talking to their grandparents about what happened and writing up their little stories. A few years ago, uh, one of the military leaders wanted to bring back the film of uh, about 1965, the betrayal of G30 PKI. Some young people then made funny memes out of the film, you know, yeah. to... You know, so they're using humor, they're using social media to fight back and to make fun and to make jokes and to laugh about it, you know, because it's like this three-hour film that's like very dated and they're yeah. trying to show it to the young people now and of course it doesn't work. So, yeah, there is hope. Mm. There, There's a lot of work still to be done. A lot of the old players are still on stage, have made a comeback, but the young people have to push through. And it's part of our task, part of our duty, the people who have been working on this for a long time, to make sure that uh, we involve the younger generation. In... Do they come along? Are they involved in yeah, some of so the workshops? And... To circle back to Stone and Flower, yeah. one of the uh, things that we do, we ask survivors to create a memory box so they can put photographs or um, mementos, things that remind them both of their happiness and pain and in in that exercise we have created these little postcards that they can write to someone to talk about every 10 years of their life so that you know people can have a longer view of the life not only about the times when you're in prison but you know for say victims of 65 or survivors from Aceh etc but also your your life before and after so we found that in this postcard uh, writing exercise some of the survivors then get their children to help them write it because some of them don't read and write that well but they want to do the exercise they take it home and then suddenly we have facilitated a conversation an intergenerational conversation inside a family within their own lives the survivors have made changes and are passing on stories and are engaging in some healing at, at the same time. Let's leave it there. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. That was Galu Wandita from Aja, Asia Justice and Rights. To learn more about Aja and its work and to access its publications, visit their website www.asia-ajar.org. Talking Indonesia will return on the 1st of June. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favourite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Thanks for listening and bye for now.